Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Osher Ginsburg podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsburg. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Today's guest, the amazing Ita Buttros. You can find her on Twitter right now. She's at I-T-A-B-U-T-T-R-O-S-E. I-T-A-B-U-T-T-R-O-S-E. More about her in just a moment. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. This is episode, what is this, 61, 62? Come on, Ginsburg, figure it out. You should have checked this before you started rolling. Uh, this is episode 61. My goodness. So there's 60 other episodes for you to enjoy. Uh, you can subscribe and it will appear magically on your phone on a uh, Sunday if you're in the US or on a Monday if you're in Australia. This is a show where every week I interview someone who I am really inspired by. It's usually someone who has figured out a way to get paid to do what they love. And I just want to know how they do it. That's pretty much the show. Um, but this show's here every week. There's plenty of episodes to listen to. If you like it, please tell a friend um, and subscribe to the mailing list, which you can find at oshaginsburg.com. To check in with you, I'm actually, I'm okay this week. It's been a tricky week. I haven't been as consistent with my journaling as I usually am, which means that um, I haven't been doing it. I've really noticed a difference. Remember I told you how I was journaling 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening? Well, it was starting to make things feel a bit better. But then I came back to Australia and I came here and I've been working on the show and, you know, got busy and next thing I know, I'm more agitated. My dreams aren't the nicest place to be. The days are a bit more prickly. Kind of early warning signs that, you know, I'm heading towards a place that's not the best. So back to 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes at night with me. Just to see, just to see what happens. I am super excited 
about hosting the Arias on Wednesday night. Now, the Arias, for those of us, those of you listening not in Australia, the Arias are like, I guess they're like our Grammys. It's our big music awards night, our Brit Awards, if that's where you are. Um, I have always wanted to do this job. I've always wanted to host the Arias. Since the first one I went to back in 99, it was at the Sydney Entertainment Centre. I've always wanted to host the Arias, and I'm going to do it on Wednesday night. Um, I'm really grateful that, uh, you know, they asked me to do it. It's a big deal for them to ask me to do it. And I'm super stoked to be a part of it. And yeah, it's going to be happening. Me and my mustache will be repping strong that night. Um, I am going to have my Mo, my Movember Mo out in, uh, my vote, my Movember Mo out in full force on Wednesday night. So if you see my mustache and it frightens you, please give generously. I'm going to get it out there for the whole world to see on Wednesday night. Mobro.co slash Osher Ginsburg is where you can donate. I cannot wait to tell you about my guest this week. She is amazing. Ita Buttrose is an incredible, incredible person. She's powerful. She's wise. She's funny. She is truly charismatic and walks and talks and moves and acts. Everything about her is grace and power, the perfect mix of grace and power. She's an incredible woman. Uh, if you don't know who she is, pretty much from the 70s on, Ita pretty much single-handedly spearheaded a modern view of Australian women. And certainly through her career in publishing, she became the face of what it was to be a modern, feminist, Australian, successful woman. She was the post of girl, woman, child, poster person. This chat is extraordinary. This chat that she gave to me, I asked her, would you be on the show? She gracefully said yes. And, and we sat down, we had 90 minutes together. It was incredible. We talked about everything and, you know, just on feminism, I'd, I'd like to think that I don't know nearly enough about feminism, even though I like to consider myself to be as feminist as I can be, as I learn more about feminism every day. Um, if anyone ever wonders why we need feminism, besides just reading YouTube comments, um, just listen to the world that Ita describes in the 70s in Australia. A world where women are second-class citizens, where pregnancy is looked on kind of as an illness, where ignorance, ignorance of basic female physiology leads men to react in anger and fear. It'll shock you, but it'll also make you realise that some of that hasn't changed so much. And hearing her talk of it, it certainly inspired me to want to empower women in my life at all possible chances. Um, because to be honest, empowerment of women is the key to peace on earth and goodwill to all. Empowerment of women in any society is the key. That's when things get peaceful. That's when people start focusing on what matters. That's when people start focusing on each other and just being better humans. When women are in power. When women are, when women are empowered and when women are in power. When men are in power, it's just a giant pissing contest and everyone wants to kill each other because they can't talk. And so they'd rather kill someone than have an argument or a discussion or a debate or come to a compromise. But when women are empowered in society, shit comes down. Look at your history books. It's fairly obvious. Um, you can follow Ita on Twitter. She's great to follow on Twitter. Ita Buttros, I-T-A-B-U-T-T-R-O-S-E is where she is on Twitter. Let her know you heard her here. And if anything in this show ticks your clock if anything on this show in this conversation works for you please 
the greatest thing you can do for me is to share this show out, share out a URL to this show. So I put on a nice shirt when I knew I was interviewing Ita. I even ironed it. I interviewed her right after she'd finished working on her morning TV show. Like I said, she was kind. She was charming. She has a beautiful, radiant smile. But she has this aura of power that comes with her when she enters the room. This is a fascinating conversation. I hope you find it as inspirational as I did. Enjoy the chat with the one and only Ita Butteros. You know, I, I, I've been in radio since I was 20, and I, you know, I firmly believe this is the future of broadcasting. You know, mm, I'm glad to agree with you. It's a digital content. Is, anyway, hi. Hello. Good morning, Ita. Good morning. I'm thrilled you're here. I've been looking forward to our chat. Oh, really? Hmm. It's, I, obviously, I've, I always prepare and getting ready for this, it was, there is just so much to talk about with you. You have a career that has touched the lives of millions of people. And that's not even an exaggeration. And then when I thought about it, you've also got a career that has probably generated billions of dollars in revenue. Yes, for other people, it's a rule. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very handy person to employ. <laughs> it is kind of hard to know where to start. Uh, but let me ask where you are. You've just, we're in the Channel 10 building in Piermont. You've just walked upstairs from your daily gig on Studio 10, which is a, like a morning chat show, yeah. uh, a, a panel show where you discuss the, the news of the day. Do you enjoy the, the daily routine? Yeah, I do. It was a big decision to make to go back to this kind of employment, you know, because I, I, I was really in charge of my own life. I didn't, I'd got to a point where I never had to ask permission to do anything. And, of course, once, once you agree to come back to a station and, you know, be part of a permanent program and a permanent panel, you, you have to actually say, would it be all right if I took a couple of weeks off, you know? And, and that, that's quite a big adjustment when you've been totally in control of your life. But, yeah, I like the... Um, I like the interaction. I like uh, I like some of I like some of not all, but some of the issues we discuss. And I always wanted to host a show. And I I just figured it was going to happen. You think, oh well, it's not not meant to happen, obviously. So I, I busied myself with other things, and then out of the blue, I got this offer to come back to Channel Ten. And you think, oh well, I'll, I'll go kick a goal. I've been trying to get this one for a long time. Now, I know when I've done the, the – I've worked on the project, which is based in Melbourne, mm. but that's something that I love, the thrill of turning up at work and there's no show, and then seven hours later when you're on air, there is a show. Uh, do you enjoy the, the idea of creating the show as, as you go and, and the idea of, like, you get here and we haven't got a show yet and then at 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock when you go on air, boom, we're away? Well, to my mind, it's very like editing a magazine. You know, it's, it's the same rule. So, so when I was – when I was editing magazines, say, say the Women's Weekly, when it was a weekly, uh, you know, you, you start with nothing and then you slowly fill it up and then you look at it and you think, oh, too much of this, not enough of that, not enough humour, not enough... And you go back and fiddle around with it and get it right. Well, that's, that's a bit like putting the show together that we do. You know, mm -hmm. you have a certain amount of topics and then somebody looks at it or one of us says to the producers, hey, you know, we seem a bit top-heavy here and we fiddle around. And, and t so, to me... It's it's like a magazine on television. Do you yeah. you I'm very used to that. I love that. I love. I mean, it's fantastic to create something out of nothing. It it is. Yeah. You, you respond well to deadlines. Yeah, I mean, deadlines are a second nature to me. I mean, I've I've been working in the media since I was 15, and uh, deadlines have, have been a part and parcel of my life, all of my life, all of my working life. You're very lucky in that. I believe you were quite young, about 11, when you thought, you know what, journalism. 
Yeah. That'll be it. Yeah, I just knew. It's funny. Some some people do know, and I I think it's it, it, it's never let me down. All the good things that I about my career have, have been through journalism. I guess following following in Dad's footsteps, you know, I, I knew what it was like. My my parents' friends were all journalists. You know, I hung on I hung on my dad's every word. You know, he used to talk to me about his job as an editor. Well, and it just seemed exciting to me. And I like writing. I mean, I do really like writing. And, of course, in this in this job at 10, I don't do a lot of writing. But I, I have written 11 books. And I, I'm actually... I've got the yearning now to write another book. My, my mind is turning to writing another book. So, as a kid, I, with my dad on Saturday mornings, would, at almost five or six, would go around and do his rounds with him at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. And, like, it was just second nature for me to be in a hospital in this environment that most people are quite afraid of and the smells and, the, you know, the different people. But that was just me hanging out with dad. Did you used to go into to work with dad on, you know, and no, check it I out? No, I didn't go to work with dad. No? no but I, I, used to, I used to cook his breakfast sometimes when he was editing an afternoon newspaper which meant he had an early start. And my mother was a working mother and I had three brothers, so mum had quite a big, a big family to look after. And I'd often get up and cook Dad's breakfast and, and we would read the newspapers and talk about a few stories of the day. It was, so the news and newspapers and reading the news and listening to the news is something, again, that I've done all of my life because of my dad. And it... And so would you say you two have a, had a good relationship? Yeah, I think we had a very good relationship. You know, and as, as you get older and you look back, I can see that I am very similar to Dad um, in, some, in some areas. And, you know, I can see my mother's traits in me also. But, um, but certainly in terms of this is the only profession you'd ever want to be in, yeah, I'm completely like Dad. Was he stoked when you said when at 15 you got your first gig? Um, I, well, I, I wasn't expected to have the kind of career that I've had. You know, I, I think Dad and, and Mum thought I'd just you know, get a job. You know, sure, I'm probably going to get a chip and train as a journalist. But they never envisaged the kind of career I had, would have. And when, when it started to kick off, you know, I think then Dad, Dad was very proud of me. And certainly when I was training... It was very tough because I had an editor at the office and I had one at home because if Dad didn't <laughs> like anything I'd written, he would you know, bang on my door in the morning and wake me up and, you know, berate me. You know, things like, didn't you learn anything about grammar at that school I sent you to? You know, <laughs> bang, bang, bang. So, so, but it was good. And sometimes I'd get stuck with a heading. I might, when I was, when I was first women's editor, I was only 23 of the Daily and Sunday Telegraphs in Sydney, sometimes I'd be trying to write a heading you know, and I'd, I'd almost have it. I went, and I'd ring Dad up and I'd say, I need to bounce this around. Because sometimes you need to bounce a heading around. And, 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 you know, I'd bounce these things around with Dad and I'd say, I think I've got it. What do you think about this? And he'd say, that's good. Go with that. And so it was very handy to have a dad who had a bit of experience in the field. High school and university are often very, you know, they're very formative places that shape you as an adult. Either that's the path you continue on or I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> and, you know, you move as hard as you, as you can away from that. How was, how was high school for you? I, I quite enjoyed school. I, was a, I, I wasn't the top of the class. I wasn't the bottom. I was somewhere in the middle there. But I wanted to... I didn't finish school. I left school before completing the high school because I wanted to get started. I was very keen to be a journalist. And uh, my parents' marriage was a bit rocky and, and I just felt that if I... And they did later divorce. And I, I thought, well, I've really got to look after me. You know, I, I've got to be in charge of my life. I, if I get a job, 
I can look after me. I've just felt I made this decision that I had to look after myself and I knew what I wanted to do and I thought, that's it, I've got to get going, I've got to, got to start right now. And so when I told them I wanted to leave school and get a job, Dad knew about the Copy Girls job going on the Australian Women's Weekly and I went in and applied for it and I got the job. That's, that was my beginning. And, you, and you, you didn't finish high school? No, I didn't finish high school. That's no, amazing. I am a graduate of the University of Life. <laughs> I don't, if, if you need to learn, being a journalist is fantastic, isn't it? Because you've got to read, you've got to research, you've got to be across the issues. So you've always got to keep using your mind. So, in fact, my, my, my secondary education really took off once I decided what I was going to do for my career. I... You know, people often ask me, how did, how did I get in? And, and this is often people who are at incredibly expensive radio colleges and things like that. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I just went and got it. I just found my way in. And I just got the job at, at a station in Brisbane and then just worked six days a week. Yeah, that's what I say to people. you just got to get your foot in the door. And it doesn't matter how low you start. And being a copy girl, which means you run messages, that's about as low as you can start in my, my career, my profession. And, and I loved it. I thought, oh, this is terrific. I'm on my way. And I was earning money. It was wonderful. I can only imagine, like, I think of when I'm in these big open plan office buildings now, that the sound of that building must have been very different then with all the manual typewriter noise. Manual typewriters, and when and when uh, when they wanted you, when one of the senior journalists or the editor wanted you, they actually had a, a sort of a bell system, a wooden board thing with a bell system, a bit like something you see in Downton Abbey <laughs> or upstairs, downstairs. You know, in business, and you rush out and the flap had fallen down, and you see the editor's office, and so you put put it back up again. Or I can't remember how we got it back up. But I must have pressed the button or something, and then I run off to the editor's office to see what she wanted, and then you know you'd wait, and it was a very different thing. Then you. You really hurried, and you didn't call anybody by their first name, of course. Everybody was Mr. This or Mrs. That or Miss Someone or Other. No familiarity at all. What a strange workplace, considering what, how we expect work and life just kind of blend into each other now. It's, it's almost hard to imagine. I think it was a better... In, in a way, I think it was a better work, work life because it was more structured, it was more ordered. And so you knew when you began and you knew when you finished and you knew when your time off was. And whereas today, work is 24-7 and you, we're all expected to be on tap. If people want you, they want to be able to ring you on Saturday or Sunday, you know, and, and, and so they do or they email you and they want you to respond, not next week, but now. And whereas when I first started work, there were rules around what we all did. I mean, you could get put letters in your in-tray and if you didn't get around to them until, say, you got them on Monday, maybe you didn't get around to them until Friday. Nobody seemed to mind. The world wasn't in such a rush. Right. But the, they say the news cycle was at a kind of a similar speed, I'm guessing. Well, I was thinking about the news cycle only the other day. I don't know what I was doing. I think somebody was talking to me about Sunday papers. And, you know, there was a time when you worked on a Sunday newspaper when, when you actually had time for lunch. I mean, you would, we'd, we would be working on the pages and we would, we'd go to lunch. We'd normally go to the Greeks and you'd have a proper lunch, a meal for about an hour, and then you'd return to the office and you would work through. And a Saturday, a Sunday paper means you often have to work at night as well. You could also go out at night time and have a bite to eat and then you return, finish off the paper. Now, you know, it would be really hard push to find anybody working on a Sunday paper today who would go off and have a civilised arrangement like that. Even the editor of the paper was dining at the Greeks. Over there, you know, in the corner, you didn't, you didn't interrupt him. You, you might have nodded at him, but you didn't go anywhere near him because he was the editor. 
therefore he was God, and he was not to be interrupted. But that was a very civilized way of working. And now, again, we're all we're all rushing, and we, you know, you might have a sandwich at your desk. Sometimes, when I was editing um, Ida magazine, a magazine I created in the 80s and 90s, I sometimes think, did I have lunch? And you think. Yeah, you did. You ate a sandwich while you were still at the computer. You know, you sort of <laughs> ate something. You just, and you think, I wonder what it was. I can't remember what I ate. But so that's the But the paper still got out. The paper still got made and with quality yes. that was... Oh, yes. And we changed the paper two or three times during a run. And, and what happened? Why did it suddenly get so busy? Technology. <laughs> it changed our life. Remember, it was going to reduce the paperwork and make everything streamlined. Well, I don't think it's reduced the paperwork at all. I think it's created more. And it's, ma- it's meant that it's a 24-7 world we all inhabit. Is, I wonder if it, are, there, are there more iterations now? Do you, just because you can, you know, get on a computer program and reorder and rechange and shift things around the page, you do it 17 times instead of three? No, I, I, I actually think deadlines are more restrictive today than they were in the past. Um, I don't know that technology has really helped us in that regard. I also think that, I also think that with texting and emailing, people are used to abbreviated forms of communications, and you know, when you're dealing with print, when you're dealing with newspapers and magazines, you really have to love the words. You have to understand what the words are saying and how the way you lay words out on a cover, for instance, really have to convey a message. And if you don't love the words, your cover lines often don't convey the right message because the message has to be, pick me up, you've got to read me. You know, you cannot go past me. I'm going to compel you to read me. And that's the same as a headline on a newspaper. And, and it's how words look. Words... Words can't just go on a page. Words have to be laid out in a way that, a way that is, is harmonious. And I think that when kids go to school and they go to design school, yes, they learn to lay out and they learn that they can use every colour under the rainbow. But you don't have to use every colour under the rainbow to have an effective page. Sometimes less is better. Do, when you see now that so much media buying is led by a clickbait headline. Does it make you a little sad? You move with the times. You can't, you know, we live in the 21st century. You can't go forward by looking in the rear vision mirror. Yeah. You have to go forward. That's, that's the nature of the beast. You say, okay, fine, this is, what we, this is what we can do. Now, how do we make it work? How do we make it work better? And how do we get a better result? It may not be what I did in print, but what else can I do with digital? Well, I can, I can reproduce photographs in the most beautiful ways. And I'm not sure we even do that well enough yet in publishing. Right. They're there. We'll talk a bit more about digital publishing later, but I just want to kind of circle back a little bit. Leaving high school to go straight into a job um, must have been must have been quite a thrill and a very different, you know, obviously a very different environment. You were a kid mm. in a grown-up world. What kind of, I guess I want to ask, like, how early did your, your work ethic kind of really kick in? I think it was always in me. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think I was raised that way, you know, to always do your best and, and you know, just try and, try and get somewhere. You didn't have to come first, but you did have to do your best. But um, I think when you're enjoying something, and I, and I did, you know, once, once I became a cadet journalist and I... I became a cadet at 16 um I was I was so loving what I was doing you know I I love I just love what I do for a living and it was exciting learning 
how to do copy. And I, and I learned on very basic things. You know, in the beginning you do weddings because I was on the women's pages. You do weddings and social paragraphs and you'd go to restaurants where society ladies lunched and ask them why they were lunching there for any special reason. And it would be an engagement or someone going overseas or someone coming back from overseas or a birthday, well, all very nice occasions. A lot of women didn't work then, or a lot of society ladies who, who lunched. And, but, you, but you learn contacts, you learn how to get on with people, you learn a bit of poise, and again, you learn how to put words together. Because even copy about weddings, if you really want them to be read, have to be compelling. You have to really work hard to turn wedding copy into scintillating copy. How did... Or how has your work ethic uh, shifted from that? Or has it always been... Are you still that 16-year-old kid who's just super excited to be at work? Yeah, I'm pretty super excited to be doing what I do. Yeah, I, I look, I love it. I've, I've loved editing. I've loved creating magazines. And I've created... I've created Ita and Clio and a magazine called Bark and probably a few other ones along the way that didn't, didn't make it. You know, not everything you create make it. And it's... Um, you know, it's such an ex it's such an exciting world in which to work because there's always something happening and there's always a story. You walk down the street and you think, "What's that over there? I wonder why that's happening." I, I, you've got to remain curious, and, and I think that's the key to me. I've never lost my curiosity. At what point in your career did you get a concept of I could make it this far, or were you just like, "I just want to do the best I can, and that will get me somewhere"? I think that I was pretty chuffed to become women's editor of the Two Telegraphs in Sydney when I was 23. Um, and I wrote to Sir Frank Packer and asked him to consider me. And there was a feeling that I was too young. And I, and I may well have been, but I got the job nonetheless. And um, when I was about 27 or 6 or something like that, I, my husband and I, I got married at 21, we decided he, he was British, wanted to return to England for a while. And I went down to say goodbye to Frank. And as I was leaving, he said, um, I hope you'll come back because I have you in mind for the Women's Weekly. And that was the light bulb moment because I thought, oh, the Women's Weekly, wow, I would love to run that magazine because it was the top job for a woman journalist in Australia. And it was, it was a weekly. And it sold something like 850,000 copies a week. It was a whopper of a magazine. It was fantastic. It's the largest circulation of any magazine in the world at the time. Uh, per capita of population? Yeah. Yes, it was. And so from that moment, I realised how far I could go. If Sir Frank thought I could do the weekly, then I realised I could do the weekly. And so everything I did from that point was to learn more about producing magazines in my, my profession so that I would be ready when, when I got the nod. It is interesting that you know all we need as people is is permission or acknowledgement. No, no, you can do that. And something that didn't occur to us is suddenly suddenly possible. Or I have you in mind. And yeah. you sort of think, wow, that's pretty hot. And so when I got to London, um, I, I applied for and got uh, a job as a sub-editor on a British women's magazine called Woman's Own, which then sold about 3 million copies a week. And it was it was my finishing school in publishing. Uh -huh. You know, it was, it was where I learnt 
lots of little things that we do. The power of the power of crossheads. They're the headings you put through copy to entice people to keep reading. The the beauty of writing a really well crafted caption. I learned a lot about promotion and, and production generally of the magazine. All of these things are crucial if you want to be a really good editor. Mm-hmm. And and then ultimately I returned to Australia. I took my old job back as women's editor, and a year later I was creating Clio magazine, which was another step forward. Yeah. On my way to the Women's Weekly, you know. What's now? I know what it's like now. I remember when I was uh, the first time I went overseas. I was only I was 24, quite late when I consider how old my my peers were when they went. But I remember coming back to Australia, going, oh, I was coming back to Brisbane, <laughs> but I did remember going, oh, hang on. So what was it like being exposed to London and that enormous, like, crucible of, of, of creation and use three million copies a week yeah. and, and, you know, there's so much culture and this focus of society and it was still very, we're kind of not the empire we were, but we're still pretty big deal. Um, and it was still swinging 60s. Yeah. You know, there was, there was still swinging 60s when I went and uh, Carnaby Street was still there and... You know the cinemas and the and the and the theatre and the opera and the ballet and the art galleries. I mean, it was like a whole new world. And then coming back to Australia, what was that like? Well, we sailed back to Australia <laughs> because you know we, 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 it was an expensive place to live, and I we'd had a child. We had a, our first child was born in London, and so I'd stopped work for a bit for 15 months. I stopped work, and so you know it was more economical to come back by ship. So we came back and we. Just before we got to Sydney, we landed in the, the ship sailed into Auckland, and the most exciting thing to do in Auckland on the day our ship docked was for everyone in New Zealand, so it seemed, to come down to our ship. Everything else was closed, and for a moment, my husband and I thought we'd made a terrible mistake. We thought, "Oh my God, what if what if Australia's like this closed?" And so we sailed on, and the seas were really rough, so we had quite a turbulent journey, and we sailed into Sydney Harbour, and it was one of those magical Sydney Harbour moments. The sky was blue, the, everything was crisp, the, the, the sun was sparkling, we looked at the bridge, and, you know, we thought, no, we made the right decision, it's OK. And by now, Australia was, um, was, very, was becoming very affluent. People were making money on stock, and there was Poseidon and stocks like that. People were rich overnight. And we couldn't believe the lifestyle, how how well off everybody seemed. And we couldn't believe the amount of alcohol everybody drank. Because it was really noticeable after being in England for three years, where sometimes we didn't drink because alcohol was expensive. And and it's just not the way of life there that it it was here and still is. And and we just we just looked at the amount of, that was being consumed and thought, wow, that's a lot of alcohol. But it didn't take us long to get into the habit, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that as well when I mm. when I first went to uh, I first went to Israel, which is a very different drinking culture. Yeah. And I remember looking there, going, oh, hang on, like we really drink differently yeah, as a we culture. Do. We, we really do. Yeah, we really do. And you notice it when you're away from it for a long time yeah. and come back to it. There's that old joke, you don't realise you have a drinking problem until you leave, until you get to Los Angeles, <laughs> until you leave Sydney. You're like, I'm the only one cracking a tinny at noon. Yeah. May I have to have a look at this? Yeah. Nobody becomes who they are in isolation. And when I was getting ready for this, I, I couldn't really find much else 
uh, about other women at, at the time except you because you had such prominence. But who were the other women around you that were on a similar trajectory? Who were who were the people in your who were your peers? There weren't any. There really weren't many women that, that were at my level when I was beginning my climb. They just weren't there. Um, I suppose in the sense I was a bit of a trailblazer. Um, so all my mentors have been men. You know, that that's the way it was because they just weren't there. It wasn't really until about the 80s, I would have thought, that more women... Oh, end of the 70s, but, but they, they still weren't at my level. But in the 80s, yes, more women began to emerge. And during the 80s, along with other women like Carla Zampatti, Wendy McCarthy, uh, Barbara Kale, a fellow publisher, uh, Amelda Roche, who she and her husband founded Nutramedics in this country. We formed a group called Chief Executive Women uh, to enable women to network because, you know, we didn't have a network. We didn't, we didn't have that yet in Australia for women. And, and that was really good. And we, we started to talk to... We'd ask prominent corporate men to come to our lunches that we had at one of the best hotels in the city and we would talk to them, let them see what, you know, women who were running businesses were really like. And that, that, was, that was a very important step, I think, for a lot of women. So, no, that's, it's just the idea that it just didn't... Oh, how do I put this? Because also at the time I was looking back on some interviews, the way that people were talking to you, the way the interviewers were talking to you, and I was like, really? How can you get away with asking a woman this question? Like, it must have been, must have been quite difficult for a lot of people to not through any fault of their own, but just to conceive that suddenly here you are, you're this woman with such great power. And a lot of guys must have had a lot of problem with it. A lot of guys? Yeah. I think men do have a problem with powerful women. That, that's, that's for sure. I don't know why. Probably because uh, they're, not, they're not conditioned um, and they were brought up in a different way. But, you know, that was then, not now. One, we, we always hope, women like me, that we've trained our sons better. And, you know, that our sons will be more acceptable of women who achieve. But in the 80s, and in the 80s, no, that was still very difficult for men to make that transition. You know, when I became um, a director of Prudential here in Australia, that was about 19... I think it was about 1990 or thereabouts. I was the first woman on that board. And one of the directors said to me, in all seriousness, Ida, you've changed the way we run our board meetings. We can no longer swear or tell jokes. And you think, is he serious? And I said to him, look, I said, I love jokes. Please tell jokes. And I said, anyone who's worked for Kerry Packer has heard swear words. And I said, I've probably heard more than you even know. Uh, you know, I mean, it's funny what people think or what men think. But this is a huge change that's taken place. In fact, it's said that the two most significant social changes of the 20th century has been the better education of girls and women and the employment of women, especially mothers outside of the home. So it's been a transition for women and it's been an equally a diff but it's been a, a more difficult transition for men because they, they never grew up with this kind of a woman. They probably had a mother who stayed at home. They, they may well have had a wife who stayed at home. So suddenly there are women out there saying oh, you know, I think this and what's more, I want your job. And that, that comes as a bit of a shock. So change takes time. And, and that's, you just have to accept that. Did you ever have any moments where you were just tired of it, sick of it, pushing against it? 
I, I think everyone gets a bit tired of it occasionally, but look, that's that's the way it is. So you accept it. And you just think, well, I'm entitled to be here. I'm entitled to have a go. I'm entitled to express my opinion, and and I'm going to do it. And now, I mean, now I'm not really fussed at all. I mean, I just think I'm here now. I don't. You know, and you, you reach a certain age, you're very comfortable with where, the, where you're at, and you think that's a load of old rubbish. And so you say so. All right, it's wonderful. <laughs> you don't you don't really give a damn anymore about what people think. You simply say what you think. As a former Clio bachelor, is it okay? <laughs> <laughs> Ten years ago this year, actually, is it okay if we talk a bit about Clio? Sure, I love Clio. What excited you most about launching that magazine? Creating it. Uh, along with the team, you know, again, you start from nothing, and this was really starting from nothing. Um, and I think the fact that all of us were on a journey, you know, we, we were all discovering things, and we were as interested as in, the, in what was going on as the people that we aimed a magazine at, and that's middle-class women. It was middle-class women that really... Um, embraced Clio and they embraced women's liberation and that's where the most significant changes took place. And, it, you know, when the ABC did the series uh, Paper Giants, The Birth of Clio, uh, a lot of the original... I got back in touch with some of the original members of the team and we some of us had already always kept in touch but we just... we hadn't really talked a lot about back then. And... Andrew Cowell, who was the art director, said to me, and it was quite telling, he said, see, not only were we exploring issues that men and women didn't discuss in Australia, but it was very rare for men and women to work together in that capacity and actually produce a magazine that addressed those issues. So even that was a learning process, working with our male colleagues so closely. I mean, you know, there was nothing we didn't discuss. You know, all sorts of sexual issues, all sorts of health issues, all sorts of emotional issues and men's issues. When we wanted to know what men thought, we, we would take the boys out. We'd, we'd, we'd take the boys out to the pub and we'd give them a few beers and then we'd turn on the tape recorder. And, you know, we did men's secret fears that way because they told us. And, and for us, that was a learning experience as well because... We didn't talk about those things in Australia in the 1970s, and yet we all wanted to know. Must have been uh, must have been super exciting putting the team together. It was terrific. Well, we'd all, most of us, had worked together on the Daily and Sunday Telegraphs, on the women's pages, and I'd also by that time uh, started a thing called Sunday Magazine, which was the black and white forerunner of the colour magazines. And so when Sir Frank Packer sold the newspaper, sold the two telegraphs to Rupert Murdoch, I was rung and told to keep the staff back because the, the new magazine was already on the drawing boards, keep back the staff that I thought would be right for the magazine. So several of us had worked together and others I, I found. The art director, Andrew Cowell, he kept... He was British. This was big... This was important because when I worked in London, I could see the importance of the art director to the magazine how crucial the art director could be to the magazine. So the fact that he was British really warmed me to him, not that he knew this at the time, because he kept coming to see me and I kept fobbing him off. You know, he wanted this job and I kept saying, you're too soon, it's not, not happening yet, go away, I'll let you know. And then I finally said to Kerry Packer, who was, who'd been given responsibility for the project by Sir Frank for Clear, and I said, look, there's this British art director, he keeps coming to see me, he says he really wants his job. I said, I think he could be the one. And so Kerry said, you know, if you think he's the one, get him. 
So that's how Andrew joined the team, and he fitted in perfectly. And he was a he was brilliant and brilliantly creative, and it was just it was just wonderful working with him. You know when you when you meet somebody and you you not only re, you respect them enormously, um, but you also enjoy creating things together. That it was it was that it was like that for me, and I hope the other way back. And I think Cleo. The other thing about the Clio team is that we all respected each other. We all knew we were pretty good at what we did. And there was great professional respect among all of us. What kind of things, particularly when you came to new hires, did you, did you look for? Um, when it came to what? New hires, like hiring new people. What kind of qualities did you look for in people? Well, I'm sure it wouldn't pass today's human resources test. <laughs> there were no, no psychological tests that had to be undertaken. You just talk. I, I just usually talk to people that want to work for me and, uh, and I look at their CVs and I look at the work that they've done and then, and then I ask them pertinent questions about whatever, whatever the job is that they're coming to do and uh, there's something about them and I think in your gut you know whether this is the sort of person you want to work with. It's, um, it's just one of those things. Sometimes you make a mistake. But with Clio, usually the decisions were all A-OK. -okay. And what kind of things could you... I guess the question, what, what kind of things do you absolutely not tolerate when it comes to your employees? Um, let me think, how would I put that? I, I can't stand people that can't give me 100%. I, I, don't, I, don't mind if it, there's, I don't mind if they have to go back and do it again, but I really want to know they're doing their best. I, I hate shirkers. I hate people who try to rip off, rip off expense accounts, and I, I can detect them. I can detect them within about... Two seconds. I've got a nose for that, and I I, I don't like people who are uh, not honest. You know, I, I like honesty in a person. Uh, it's a really important attribute, and I I just I just want your best. Just don't don't lie to me and don't try and con me. Just deliver. So when you've had employees that have done their best, but it's still not quite up to what you need, what what do you do? Do you? Well, depending on the, the size of your operation, you can sometimes transfer them around a company. So when I was, when I was at Consolidated Press, for instance, during my Women's Weekly times, I, I ultimately became the publisher of the women's division. So I had a, a huge division there. Yeah. So sometimes I would say to somebody, I don't think you're quite right for this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This particular job, what about going to this job or something mm -hmm. like that? Sometimes I had people working for me who I could see had a better future. And I'd say, are you sure you really want to be doing this, this area? Because I think you'd fit better here 
And I've seen them later, you know, one's gone on to run her own company, one's become CEO of an organisation. Sometimes as a boss, I think you have to work out, you just look at a person, you think, fantastic person, but in the wrong slot, they'd be better off over here. And I've often done that throughout my career, putting people in where I think they're, they're better suited. And if you, if you absolutely aren't going to work, if it doesn't work, I, I'm fairly frank. I say, look, I don't really think you have a future with this organisation. I think you've just got to lay it on the line, but nicely, you know, because it's a big thing to tell someone, no, it, this is not the place for you. And you don't always end up in the right place. You know, sometimes you've got to go off and try again. Hmm. Does it ever get... I mean, what have you learned about firing people? Oh, I think retrenching people is the worst job of all. I've, I've had to do that a couple of times, usually at the Packers. Um, it's a horrible job. It's a horrible job to, say, to retrench staff because uh, it's, it's for economic reasons, not really for work performance. And I, I, think, I think you've got to do it yourself. I think it's a job you can't delegate. When you're the boss, I think you've got to do it. I think you owe that to the person because you're going to change their lives forever. And, you know, you have to, you have to do it as kindly and, and as thoughtfully as you possibly can. It is, it is the worst job in management, without doubt. It's quite, and you know, you might think about that, that George Clooney film, Up in the Air. You know, people even outsource that stuff now because it's too hard. Yeah, well, you can't do that. That's that, that's that's unacceptable behaviour. You know, and I don't accept unacceptable behaviour in myself either. I'd imagine, yeah, because like, we all live in our own heads. Yeah. And well. no one's ever as mean to us as we're mean to us, and no one ever drives us as hard as we drive ourselves. Well, but someone's got to drive you, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you know, what's it like? being managed by you? Well, I'm kept on my toes. <laughs> well, I don't know any other way anyway, so yeah. I'm quite, you know, I'm quite happy. I think, I think it, the test is when you get up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror and if you're comfortable with the person you're seeing there, then it's okay. And I'm comfortable with the person I see in the mirror in the morning. Just to kind of paint the picture a bit of the, the, the publishing, the, the, the way that publishing was at the mm. time when you were uh, editor of uh, Clio magazine and then editor of Australian Women's Weekly, in a time before truly national television, when we still had each television station was fairly regional, we weren't networked at that point. Yes, they were seven and nine, but they weren't showing the same programs at the same time of day. There was no internet. There was very little national radio. What Can you describe the kind of influence your magazines had on society? Well, the weekly certainly had a huge impact on society in Australia. It, you know, it, it was a magazine that Sir Frank started in the Great Depression of the 30s. Um, it was the magazine everybody sent to the troops when they were fighting during World War II. It was how the boys kept in touch with home. And it, it enjoyed a very, um, very wide circulation. It went into one in four homes in Australia. And, you know, almost four million people read it every week. So. It was very influential, but it wasn't used in that way. You know, it, it, was, it was the weekly and people trusted it. So when I came to it, um, it, it, it was in need of a bit of modernisation. That's, that's why I got the job, to modernise the magazine and to reduce the size. It was a tabloid size and the cost of paper was huge in Australia at the time. There was a shortage of paper. We import paper here for magazines like The Weekly. And so we reduced the size of it to what's called the standard size to, to cut you know, to cut costs, and it worked. But, um, you know, you do realise, then you suddenly realise governments would seek you out to talk about um, 
pensions, how they, you know, because we use people talk as opposed to bureaucratic talk. So the government would come and say, we're doing something with the pensions, you know, could, could the weekly do something on pensions? And we would, and we'd say, and next, today we've got something on pensions, and the sales would go up. So remember, there was no other way to disseminate this information as effectively as, as you could in the weekly every week. We, we did the beginnings of the National Heart Foundation, we did diabetes, we did asthma, all the major health conditions that are still around today. Health organisations beat a path to the weekly. Could we tell Australians what they needed to do? And again, because we do it and people talk. And, and then you, you, just, you, you just grow on you. That you, you know, this magazine has enormous clout. But it was never political. It, it, the Weekly never took sides. You know, if we, did, if we did something on a Liberal politician, you'd find something on a Labor politician. But we didn't do a lot of that. The, the magazine that started doing politicians was Clio. Clio was really the first women's magazine, I think, that started to interview politicians. Because, again, it was, it was a reflection of the times. But we didn't take sides. We didn't say this guy is better than other. We were just interested. So it might have been Donnie Dunstan, who was the Premier of South Australia, and then it might have been... I know, I know Paul Keating landed up in a magazine called Mode, which is one of our fashion magazines in the Sable at the time, and we picked him then as a young politician to watch. <laughs> and it's really quite fun going back and looking at some of the old issues of that time. You think, wow, look at Paul Keating, and look what we said about him. So um, uh, I think I, I think women's media was much better respected than it is today. You know, it's trashed itself a bit. And there's a lot of magazines that publish stories that are clearly not true. And you, you can only con the public for a certain amount of time. I mean, they know trash when they see it. And, and so the, 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 the brand, the women's magazine market brand, has reduced itself in terms of how people view it. It used to be highly respected. All the women's magazines were highly respected. You, after you went to Australian Women's Weekly, and you mm -hmm. edited Australian Women's Weekly, you became the first female editor-in-chief of the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph. How did it feel to have achieved the same level of career achievement that your father had achieved? Oh, I, I went past that. Yeah, well, at the time, yeah, though, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went past that. How did but that feel? Well, so how did it feel to surpass? I didn't, I didn't see myself in competition to Dad, so I, I, don't, I don't actually remember having that thought, to be perfectly honest with you. I was was just the way it was for me. And, you know, my dad had his career and this was my career. And I never, I never thought of being competitive as far as my father was concerned. No, I wanted his approval. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to say, good paper, good paper today. And, this, and he would read me on a, on a Sunday after he'd looked through the Sunday Telegraph and he'd say, good paper today. And then we'd, dis we'd discuss a story or we'd discuss the editorial or whatever. And, you know, that was... I was quite chuffed, and I, I might I might have talked to him for about an hour about the paper. You see, it was if you know the business, you talk the business. Yeah, yeah. Was it more of a kick to get your dad's tick than the sales tick? Oh no, you need the sales as well. <laughs> no, 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 no. You need both. But but if Rupert was happy with the papers, that was that was another that was another one. You know, and after I'd been there for about twelve months, Rupert was happy with the papers. And you think, well, that's great. As long as Rupert's happy, I'm happy. Well, kind of. I've worked with them only like seventy thousand people down the line when mm -hmm. I was working at Foxtel. And kind of, what what kind of guy is he to work for? 
Well, he was in America for most of the time. You know, he'd gone off to America to start the expansion of the empire. But every year you'd see, you'd, I mean, you'd see him. He'd be down in Australia, and then you would go to New York, and Rupert would have all the telegraphs there. You know, and he'd go through them, and he, you know, he'd, he'd find something to ask you a question about. You know, he had a terrific eye. But that's his newspaper eye. You know, you pick things up that other people don't see. And uh, we had a blitz on. Um, um, videos, you know, advertising sex videos and stuff like that. Rupert decided they had to all go out of the Telegraph, out of the Daily Telegraph. And so I used the edict, no more of this. Anyway, I go off to New York on this particular trip and Rupert's got all the papers and he, he's thumbing his through and then he go and he screeches to a halt on a sports page, which so we're almost at the back of the paper. And there he has found the smallest little ad for a sex video and he said... I thought we were getting rid of those. And you think, oh, stone the crows. How did that get in there? <laughs> yeah. And I said, won't be there again, Rupert. And so I, naturally we got rid of it again. But he's just got such a good eye. And he, he had comments. You know, he wrote to me once about the Sunday Telegraph. We were, we were really trying to beat the Sun Herald here in Sydney, which is our rival newspaper and always had been, even when the papers were owned by Sir Frank. And Rupert wrote to me and he said, that he felt we were trying too hard to shock the good people of Sydney. What they need is comfort and familiarity. And you think, right. And then he said they were qualities he'd, he'd admired in the old Sun Herald. So you think, hmm, OK. So we studied the Sun Herald, didn't we? We, we studied it. We pulled it apart. We, we knew it better than it knew itself. And then we introduced what we thought was some of its better qualities into the Sunday Telegraph, and bingo, we passed them. It's great. It's funny because you know you pick up the Daily Telegraph today, and it all it all it is is, is shocking the good people of Sydney. No, this was a Sunday Telegraph. You don't you don't shock them on a Sunday. All I right, think, I can I think you can shock the hell out of them during the week, but on Sunday you don't shock them. So, but it was good constructive advice, you know, and it showed. I mean, he took the time to write, to give me his thoughts, and you know that's what you need when you're in when you're editing a paper. You need someone just to say, this is good. But what about? How do you feel about the, the level of his, of his influence now? I mean, someone who knows him better than pretty much everyone that I've ever met. Well, he's a mighty, he's, he's a mighty success story, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can listen to Clive Palmer going on about him being an American citizen and so on, but we all know why, why Rupert changed his uh, citizenship, because he had publishing ambitions. I'm sure the Australian part of him is still there, loud and strong. And, and you know, he, he is, by all... All, by all rules, one of our most successful entrepreneurs. It's a, it's a mighty empire he's built. And he does believe in it. He still believes in print. A lot of people don't. So should we be... I guess the question is a lot of people say that he has too much influence, that he has too much sway. Well, he does own a lot of newspapers in Australia, that's for sure, and he's, you know, he's got them in New York and he's got them in, um, in London. But, you know, he... he he didn't break any rules in getting these newspapers. I, I did think, I did think perhaps he had too many newspapers in Australia when he started to get get them all into into the News Limited. But but it's it's occurred, and if you look at them across the across Australia, they're all pretty feisty. They're all pretty feisty publications. I don't see signs of collusion. They all seem to have their own views. I I, I can see sometimes the Sydney papers uh, have been 
very they were fairly antagonistic, I guess, towards the Labor government, the previous Labor government, Gillard and Rudd. But but then given given that government's performance and the lack of uh, surplus in the budget, which was promised to the Australian people six times and we didn't get it, I suppose one could be critical. But but I don't see it in all of I don't see I don't see a terrible thing happening in all in the newspapers that is detrimental to Australia. Because so many people seem to feel that you know, well, there's always going to be critics of the media, and I mean, I'm as critical as anybody else. You know, I can criticise the Australian, and then I can say that Fairfax is doing this, and then I can be critical of Fairfax. And, you know, say use of it as doing that. I think it's good that you can have public opinion and dissension. That we can say these things if we want to. We're it, not muzzled. It is. It's a very important part of democracy. Yeah, we're not muzzled. We can write letters to the editor. We can blog. We can tweet. We can go to Facebook. We can ring up Talkback. We've got plenty of places in which to say we don't like we don't like that. Or like Peter Finch said in that amazing movie, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I mean, you know, we can say that too. If we Network, to. what an incredible, mm. what a prophetic film. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Mm. You look at it then. It was only three channels, but still. If nobody's ever seen Network, I highly recommend it. Yeah, great movie. But, you know, when I worked for the Packers, they own nine in Melbourne and nine in Sydney. And and we often cross-promoted. Sam Chisholm, who was then running Channel 9 in Sydney, he'd sometimes ring me up and say, um, we need to win the ratings on next week. We've got a... What did he have one year? He had a Laurence Olivier movie of some... I can't remember who else was in it. And I said... I said, sure, what do you want? Do you want page seven in the weekly? And he'd say, can you give me a spread? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll give you a spread. So the weekly would have a spread of this movie and you know, coloured photos when it was on, Channel 9. They'd win the ratings. I'd ring up sometimes and I'd say, our sales aren't very good this week. Can you give me some extra TV spots, please? Because we made commercials that went to it. Yeah, OK, we'll give you some more. So they give me some more spots and when the sales will pick up. I mean, it's very handy having a, a TV station in the, in the organisation and very handy for a TV station to have a magazine with the cloud of the weekly, you know? Yeah. But, but I think that was the great success of the Packers, that those of us in executive positions, and there were about five of us that had key roles, was that we were very corporate and we did work, work together well for the good of for the good of the company, for the good of the corporation. You know, when we did World Series cricket, it was very important to the company that it be successful. And again, we all banded together because we knew that the company needed this to be successful. There was, n- there was no dissension. So at the time, you were your profile, your personal profile, and the, the ITA brand, if we will, started to grow kind of in parallel with your, your, your corporate career. Mm. What was it like the first few times you were recognised on the street? <laughs> oh, such a long time ago when it all started. Um, it really started when I started doing the Women's Week, these commercials, because, uh, you know, we, our buy was so big. You know, we were on nine, seven, ten. You know, we were on all of them. Wherever there was a spot, we were there. And and I it was quite daunting at first because people stop and stare, and I'd think I was in disguise. I'd have a scarf on and sunnies, and then I'd open my mouth, and they, and they and they would know it was me. And and I I lisped a lot. You know, I have a lisp, and it was a lot more noticeable then I think than it is now because uh, I've learnt the words to avoid and I've I've learnt better diction. But uh, that was Paul Hogan used to 
put me in his comedy sketches, he'd have signs saying, yes, Y-E-T-H and all that sort of stuff. But, <laughs> but now, you know, I've been in the public eye for so long um, that I don't really notice when people stare at me. And my friends do. You know, other people do, but I don't. Because otherwise you wouldn't do anything. You just have to get on with your life. In a career like yours, there's often, and we've talked a lot about how things have gone very, very well for you, but there's always times when things sometimes don't go well. Mm. What have you learned about, you know, what have you learned about failure? That not everything you do in life works. I mean, that's the way it is. And it's, it's how you pick yourself up, really, from failure and what you learn from it that, that, that's important. But, you know, there is, there is a myth, I think, that successful people have never experienced failure. But the truth of the matter is most successful people have experienced failure somewhere along the way. But they've accepted it and they've learned from it. They've tried not to make the same mistakes again and they've, they've gone on looking for another, another opportunity. And I, and I think that's what I've done as well. There's a, I've just finished a book by uh, Carol Leifer. She's a, a comedy writer. She wrote for Seinfeld. She wrote for... Um uh, Larry Sanders' show. She's an actress, and she talked about the, the night that she wrote, created, produced, and starred in her own sitcom. And she, it was while Seinfeld was on, and it was the opening night. And she's at CBS Television uh, in, uh, in Radford, down in the Valley in LA, and she's super nervous. And Seinfeld was there to, to put her, to you know, just show support. She's super nervous, and, and Seinfeld's like, "Carol, your career isn't this one thing. It's not just this one thing. It's." It's a collective of everything. Sometimes yeah. think one thing doesn't work, and that's okay. And that really, I just I guess it really, that really touched me. But in the depths of it, when it doesn't work, when the thing's over, when the job's done, when the, you get the phone call going, yeah, we're not picking you up for another season, it's hard to feel that. Of course it is, and you feel grief. Uh, you know, you do. You go off and grieve. Uh, and, I mean, there's just no getting away from it. And, and then you sort of think, okay, fine. You've gone off and you've licked your wounds. Now get yourself going again because no one else is going to get you going again. You've got to pick yourself up and go on. When other people have come to you, when those, you know, so often you've, you've been in the charge, like when you've had a magazine that you created yourself, you found funding for it and that, that didn't succeed. How was it to then bear the weight of the whole staff uh, when that happened? Awful. Yeah. Awful, because, you know, first of all, you have to say, we're not going on with this project, then I have to put, give, give them all notice. I mean, you've got to pay them all out, uh, then you've got to make sure that they've got, you know, that you, you hope you can find other openings for them. It's terrible, because, you know, you, you become a family in a way, mm. and you're responsible for them, and they look to you for guidance. But the, sometimes, as we've discussed, things just don't work. And, and you, sometimes you have to call the plug. You have to pull the plug sometimes in order to go on. Because if, if something doesn't work and you hang on to it forever, you never go on. And, and so you think, I've got to let it go. Because if I don't let it go, I can't go here. Is but it's not easy. And, and in a way, the humiliation, if you like, for want of a better word, is, is hard. It's very hard. You know, when, when you've had a lot of success to have something that doesn't work, it, it's a very hard call. And, and I've got emotions too. And, and they're, they're in play also. You know, and I, I've certainly created, over my career, I've created magazines for the packers that didn't work. But, you know, you're in a big, big organisation and it's sort of, you know, there's lots of, 
it's not the same. But when you're a small publisher, like I was at the time, and and this was a very important magazine for me, um, and it doesn't work, it's much more in the limelight than I think anything I might have done for Rupert or or the Packers that didn't didn't turn out to be successful. But anyway, look, it's life's rich tapestry. That's all I can say to you. So what? when the grieving process is coming to a close, what is it that gets you to turn around and go, all right, next thing? Usually money. <laughs> you need to earn a living. <laughs> Certainly back then, you know, I mean, I still had children to look after and so on. So, um, But, it, but it's, it's yourself. You know, you, you, can wallow in, you can wallow in the misery or you can get on going. And look, you're only here once. You've really got to make the most of your life. You, you know, you think, okay, fine, that's that. Let's go. That's a great phrase I love. Let go or be dragged. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you spoke, you spoke about, about being a mother. You quite famously worked through a pregnancy, which at the time was like the sky is falling. It was, because yeah. I, th- I think when I, when I became pregnant with my son, Ben, in the run-up to the launch to Clio, you know, women were expected to leave work. I, honestly, I think men thought pregnancy was some kind of illness. And uh, when, when I worked through it, and they could see, and the Packers in particular, could see that I was, I was fine. You know, nothing had gone wrong. I still thought the same and I could still edit the magazine. They were very relieved. But, you know, you, again, we forget what it was like. I was, um, I, I must have been about, I don't know, maybe seven or eight months pregnant. And I had to go to a meeting one day in one of the boardrooms at Consolidated Press and, and we wore maternity frocks back then. We didn't wear sort of tight frocks. That Here's wear. my baby bum. No, yeah. But, but nonetheless, you, you can still see. Anyway, at, during, at some point during this meeting, I realised that the men, because I was the only woman there, the men were fascinated by my stomach, which was moving, because my son was kicking. So there was a movement going on. And I, and, and I looked out and I could see this going on. And Rob Henty, who was Carrie, Carrie Packer's cousin and the, mm, the general manager of Consolidated Press, I think what he did, Rob said to me, could I feel it? And I said, yes, yeah, sure. And he put his hand there and, and his face was magic. He couldn't believe he was feeling the baby kicking. And just, you see how men were excluded from the whole thing of the baby and the birthing process. It was, it was a magical moment. And the joy on his face was just wonderful. And if I'd said, nah, get your hand off, which would probably happen today, poor Rob, he would never have never experienced that a terrific miracle, that miracle of feeling a baby inside someone's stomach. It was, it was, a, it was a really beautiful moment. I'll, I'll never forget it. He's, Rob's dead now, but I will never forget the look on his face. It, and it's, it's almost difficult to believe that this is a time when, you're, like you're saying, that men were just, there was no what to expect when you're expecting books. There was, like, men would be like, well, I don't know, what I was, I'll see her again in 10 months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was very different. There was a man, there was a man who... Um, came to me, wrote to me when I was running Cleo, and he wanted to know about the menopause. His wife, uh, not the menopause, he wanted to know about a hysterectomy. His wife was having one, and they hadn't been able to find out from their doctors, um, you know, would they be able to resume their normal sex life after the operation? Could I help him? And you think about this. The only place this man felt he could go to was an editor of a magazine called Cleo. He didn't know me from Adam, but he thought maybe I could help him. 
So I rang him up and I asked him to come into our office and we sat him down. We had one armchair guarded from everybody. We sat him in our one armchair. We made him a coffee. I gave him a book on hysterectomies. He read it, disappeared, thanked me and disappeared. And I, I hope the book, I'm sure the book um, allayed his fears. But you see the lack of communication that went on. So if women were ignorant about their bodies, men were more ignorant. And there was no, there was nowhere to go, nowhere to find out such simple information. I can't imagine what it would be to be a woman going into that kind of operation and not be able to even know yourself, let alone tell your husband That's, what it... Yeah, what would happen... How was, frightening, how completely frightening. Well, when I got to the Women's Weekly... I thought, this it. I'll run this definitive piece, everything you need to know about having a hysterectomy. This is great. This is a service to men and women. Well, that's fine. We wrote the piece. It was really good. And, and we went to make the Women's Week. We made the Women's Weekly's commercials. They were always, they were always G. They could be on any time of the day because the weekly was the weekly and we didn't have anything that on. We didn't advertise anything that children couldn't watch. And I got a call from our advertising agency to say, the Federation of Australian Commercial Television, that's where you get your ads approved, don't like your ad. They said it can't go to air until after 8.30 at night. And I said, what on earth are you talking about? He said, well, that's what he said. I said, well, give me the name of this person. That, what is it? So I rang this bloke up and I said, look, I understand. Yes, he said it. I said, well, what is the problem? He said, that article on sex. And I said, what article on sex? And he said that article on hysterectomies. And I said, that's not sex. And so I gave him a lesson on women's anatomies. And we got, the, we got our tick back and we went to air in our normal time slot. Now, you, you don't, it's hard to believe, but this was Australia in the early 70s and the later part of the 70s. That is, so when now, when you, when you look at women working, uh, what, what could Australia do better? What can we as a society do better to support working mothers, do you think? Working parents. I think fathers need a hand here as well. I think, we, I think there's a lot of lip service to family-friendly fam, family workplaces, but I think we can do better. A, a, a man wrote to me at Studio 10 for my segment Ask Ida yesterday, and he said he asked for time off to go to his kid's sports day, and he felt guilty. Hmm. And I said... No, you have to get over that. No room for father guilt. Uh, you know, it should be a natural thing. Fathers want to spend time with their children just as much as mothers. And the workplace needs to acknowledge that. If, you, if you've got happy employees, you're going to get a much better performance out of them. And children are an important part of our employees' lives. And while we've all got to be sensible about how much time we take off, you know, things like sports day, I think a company can manage without you for a little while without making you feel guilty. And if you can't, there's something wrong with the way the company's being run. And it's such a sports day is that it's such a huge emotional day yeah, for a and kid. The kids, the kids want us there. Yeah. So what about? I mean, we, we've been here for a while. I'm very grateful for your time. I don't want to take up too much of it. Uh, how do you think that men can? You, you mentioned earlier that um, men, some some men just don't really still don't really know how to handle a, a powerful woman. Uh, who, a powerful, crew-minded woman. How can men listening or, or, or guys listening, what can they do better? What can, what can men do better? Well, first they just need to learn the one important lesson that um, a woman who's powerful can open lots of doors and is a very fun creature. Uh, I, you know, I don't have a problem with powerful men and I don't think women do have a problem with powerful men. So why can't it work in reverse? You know, a, a powerful woman has a very interesting mind. 
You should get to know it. And, and how are powerful women when they work with each other? Well, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, suggestions in the, that women don't uh, are not supportive of one another. I th- I think that might have been true in the past. I think certainly I've, I've seen evidence of that. But when I when I go and speak, I do a lot of speaking uh, speaking on the professional circuit. When I go and speak to younger groups of women today, it seems to me they're a lot more supportive of one another. So I, I'm I'm hoping that has changed, um, and that women understand in the same way men support each other so well that we need to do the same. You know, it it, it doesn't matter if one woman gets a job and you think. Why she got it and not me, you know. If that's not, it's just not meant to be. You, you have to accept that. So you go and look for your next job, the next opportunity. But don't be envious. Be supportive. When I uh, I became an Australian citizen in 1999, uh, and when I became an Australian citizen, I was told by the Lord Mayor of Sydney, who swore me in, that the uh, ceremony wasn't consecrated until I ate the lamington. After, <laughs> afterwards. So I'm wondering, when you, when you got the Order of Australia, the, the, the greatest honour you can be given in our country, what, what was that day like? What was that ceremony when like? When I became Australian of the Year. Yeah, sorry, 20, that's the one. Yeah, yeah in Australian 2013. Of the year. Oh, look, it takes your breath away. Uh, you know, I was standing there and the Prime Minister, Julie Gillard, said I was the Australian of the Year. And you, it, it doesn't sink in for, for a second. You said that, and then you think, oh... That's that's me, and it's, it's a huge honour. I don't think I don't think I could ever have an honour to 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 outdo that one. And you're certainly very conscious that you're following in the footsteps of many distinguished Australians, and 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 you know that Australia expects a lot of you. What's more, and but what being Australian of the Year does, it gives you it gives you a platform, uh, and it gives you an authority to talk about issues that concern you and you hope Australian people and certainly I, I used my year to talk about older Australians, better respect, better employment opportunities and certainly to raise awareness of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias in my role as president of Alzheimer's Australia and it, it, was, a, it was an amazing year. When I got to the end of it I thought I don't know how I did that and I don't because it really does turn your world upside down because there's a lot of travelling, a lot of speaking, a lot of meeting people, and you're hot. I mean, you're hot in the mm. sense people want you to come and do things, to talk. And and you, and you, you go with the flow. That's the best way to do it because you've got this amazing opportunity to talk about those causes that were so that I'm really passionate about. And I, I, I went to several schools and I that was a real eye-opener because I don't go to schools much now. Um, and when you go to some of them and you look at the playground and you look at the many nationalities that are represented there, you really do... I mean, you know we're multicultural. I know we're multicultural, but it's when you see the playground, it really impacts on you how much it's changed from, say, when I went to school, when, when certainly I went to a school where there were a lot of European girls, you know, girls from Latvia and, and Hungary and, and from Second World War um, countries... And, and But you look at it now, it's so much more diverse. And it, it's a very interesting playground. You look at the way they all get on well together and you think, that's really good. All those kids seem to be getting on very well. Pity we can't emulate them in adulthood right throughout the world. It gives, it gives me hope for uh, our future as a country, kids growing up not thinking anything different. You know, as, as I think now about 
I guess, you know, I'm 40 and I think about sexuality, it, you know, I couldn't care if someone was gay or straight or, or whatever, but, you know, that was absolute taboo 40 when I was born. So I think those kids now growing up won't even blink at someone with a different skin shade. You'd hope be, not, wouldn't yeah. you? I mean, that's what we all hope. I mean, 40 years ago, homosexuality, yes, we were certainly talking about it, but it wasn't... It could come out in the workplace and things like that. No, men men were particularly yeah. were particularly hesitant to mention they were gay, but but certainly Clio magazine did run. I think the first piece on lesbian mothers. We were we were well, we were fascinated by that very thought because again, these were issues no one ever spoke about, and yet it was happening in our in our community. What a thrill! What a thrill! You I mentioned earlier you've written uh, eleven books, mm-hmm. two of which I believe were on etiquette. Yes. Well, I wrote, I wrote one. Uh, the first etiquette book was written in 1985. And then, then I got the idea of revising it because I, w- I was living in an apartment at the time and I used to look at the way people hung out their washing. And, you know, there are ways to hang your washing out. I mean, you, hang, you should hang your socks from, from the toe and, you know, your shirt should be hung from the tail to the window. And I used to look at this and I thought, they don't know. No one's told them. So I, I went to see my publisher and I said, look, Julie, I said, I don't think people know how to do anything anymore. I said, nobody tells them. And, that, and so we got the idea of revising and really adding to my original etiquette book. So I, then I produced a, a guide to Australian etiquette, yeah. And I'm just completing my first app on etiquette, on business etiquette. Because, again, when I look in the workplace, it seems to me a lot of younger workers don't know the rules. They don't know how to introduce an older person to a younger person. Uh, they don't know um, workplace behaviour rules. They don't know how to use their knives and forks correctly. They don't know how to order the wine at a, at a lunch when you're entertaining clients. All these things that come as second nature to you if, you if you've learnt them when you're growing up. But as we know, parents seem to be too busy to do this these days and so there's a bit of a gap. So I thought, I shall fill it. But it's it's, it's just common sense stuff. And I think it makes um, your advancement in the workplace a lot easier. So, yeah, a lot of people might just think, I have all these forks in front of me. I'm just going to use whatever one to put the food in my mouth. It doesn't matter. I get fed. Why is it important to pick the right fork? Why is it important to get the introductions because right? Because you only get one chance to make a very good first impression and you just don't know who's looking at you, wondering whether they're going to employ you. Uh, you can lose a job. People have lost jobs because they haven't, had the right manner know-how. It's, it mightn't seem important, but it is. People judge you. When I, was, um, when I was that copy girl all those years back on the Women's Weekly, I was noted. I only learnt this when I became the editor. I was noted as a copy girl to watch because I had brought in a tea towel from home to wipe up the teacups. No other copy boy or girl had thought to do that. So I... I had no idea I was, I'd made that kind of impression. I just thought, gee, the cup's dripping all over the floor. I'll bring a tea towel in and wipe it. It was just a common sense thing. But look, what, look, I was noted. You just <laughs> never know, do you? So for folks who are listening that may be just starting into, yeah. into there. Put a tea towel in your handbag. Put a tea towel in your hand. <laughs> put a tea towel in your handbag. But when you look at, look at I mean... I started, you started, at a time when you had a job for, if not life, at least a good 10 years or so. People don't work that long in the same job anymore and, and careers shift and change and move and blah, blah, blah. What would you say to people who are finishing uni or finishing high school or you know, starting their careers now? What, what would you say to them? 
Well, they do shift around a lot more, but that's that's the workplace, so that's fine. So embrace the workplace as you find it, but keep learning. You know, I, I think it's really important to keep learning, even if you've just graduated, still keep learning, because you can't possibly know everything you have to know these days because technology is changing so fast, and that's changing the workplace. That changes the, the challenges of a boss. Uh, so you've got to have the right team around you. I mean, a, a boss today couldn't possibly know everything you had to know about technology. Technology is just outstripping the way we work, the way we think. So you've got to have people around you who can shore up your, your team, but you've always got to keep learning. I think, I think I've always kept learning in all the work I've done. And I think it's essential because the moment you think you know it all is when you stop going forward. Final question. You've had your finger on the pulse of Australia longer than anyone I've ever spoken to. How are we going? Do you think we're going in a good place? Do you think we're... What are your thoughts? Well, I'm an optimist, and so I always try to find something good, you know, and uh, I'm sure Australia has some problems. You know, we, we, we've, we've got a debt. We've got a debt we've got to repay at some point. I don't know that it's a terrible crisis. I don't have a problem with being in debt. If you work out a way to pay it back, I don't think it's something that needs to be paid back tomorrow necessarily. And so, therefore, with that kind of thinking, that then alters the way I might structure some of the plans I have for Australia. But I'm, I'm not at the seat of power. I'm just an observer. But I, I, think, I, think, I think people leading the country, whether it's corporate or whether it's in the public service or in the government, I think you've got to understand the public is not stupid. The public can actually take bad news. The public does comprehend what's going on and you've got to level with them and you've got to communicate with them. And if you're not a good communicator, you have to find somebody who is to tell people what is happening, why we're taking certain decisions and what it will mean for Australia in the long term. I can't thank you enough for this, Ita. Oh, it's a pleasure. This has been a treat. Thank I'm going to you. take your photo with that camera over there. Oh, hello, camera. If that's all right? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Smashing. All right. Thank you. And that was Ita Buttrose. You can follow her on Twitter at I-T-A-B-U-T-T-R-O-S-E. Let her know that you heard her here. And if it's for you, please share out a link to the show um, because that's the best thing you can possibly do. If you like this show besides subscribing, the best thing you can do is let other people know. Just tell someone if it's for you. Um, I'll see you on Wednesday night at the Arias. Please don't let my mo have been grown in vain please on wednesday night when you see me on channel 10 with my mustache please give generously mobro.co slash osherginsburg i'm doing movember to raise money for three things i believe in very very strongly testicular cancer prostate cancer and mental health um, these three things are in my life and uh, some more than others personally but they're very 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 important to me and i really am very proud to be a movember ambassador and uh, i hope you can just sling a couple of bucks two bucks three bucks five bucks doesn't matter how small it is it all uh, makes a very big difference i'm um, i'm gonna journal this week 15 minutes in the morning 15 minutes in the evening and i'm gonna let you know how i go next week all right my friends thank you so much for being here i'll talk to you next week till then be kind to each other, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 